And something we love to do, Holy Trinity, is draw when uh, we're listening to a sermon. And uh, this week, if you fancy doing that, again, not just looking over at my kids, but any others who are keen to do this. Uh, I know some of you do. Uh, if you could please have a go at drawing someone eating, maybe it's like a comic strip, in a way that makes them strong and alive, and someone eating in a way that makes them ill, eating stuff that doesn't agree with them. See if you can do that. I'm sure your creative powers are equal to such a thing. So uh, that's, again, you're all wondering, what on earth is that about? There we go. Okay. Uh, Let's pray with the word in front of us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who gives himself so completely to us as an expression of the love of the Trinity for the church. May we meet him in the word and in the sacrament he has given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Picture the scene. Twelfth night, the year is 878. We're in Chippenham. Any of you know where this is going? Anyone know? I'm surprised Terry doesn't. I'm surprised Terry doesn't. The Vikings are pillaging all across the kingdoms of Mercia and Wessex. They leave no survivors. It's a bit like a cross between Glastonbury and, you know, the circus, the Roman circus. It's horrible if you are found in their wake. But of course, it's a Christian festival. All our eating and drinking, all our observance in the middle of winter means we're safe tonight. But as Tom Holland said, the Vikings are cheats. (laughs) They did an ambush against King Alfred and all his men on Twelfth Night, while they were enjoying the Christmas feast. Isn't it so horribly unsporting? And Alfred, abandoned from his men, had to dash off into the night. And then he burnt some cakes and became King of England. Okay, so that, then there's the rest of the story. But the point is, what we eat, the festivals we keep, can have pretty serious consequences. But nowadays, now we don't really believe in that. We don't really believe you keep a feast when the Vikings are at the door. Of course you don't. That's stupid, Alfred. Does eating affect more than our individual body's health? You remember the myth about Persephone, daughter of Demeter, who was kidnapped by Hades, according to the Greek myth. And just before she was rescued, Hades sneakily offered her a few pomegranates from the underworld. Not pomegranates, actually, pomegranate seeds. And just as they passed her lips, she was rescued. And Haley was like, aha, you've eaten my food. You have to stay here for a third of the year. Which, according to their tradition, is why there's three months where we don't get any growing. Because Demeter was grieving for her daughter who was lost to the underworld. So this idea of what we eat having consequences beyond just what happens to our physical bodies, it's woven in to all human culture. Paul's talked already in this letter about eating food being connected with demons. And then last week, he's talked about reflecting the unseen spiritual world in what they wear when they're worshipping. But now Paul goes beyond the external business of what we wear in worship, in Christian worship, and goes into how we are united by what we eat. It's not differences, it's not external, it's internal 
and it's the thing that makes us one. And we are going to talk about Holy Communion. So verse 17 to 27 of that passage in 1 Corinthians, do open it if you've shut it. Jesus shapes our spiritual life physically. Jesus shapes our spiritual life physically. Do you notice when Linda was reading verse 18, we got a big callback months ago for us, but probably only like, I don't know, 20 minutes ago for the people who were listening to the letter because they listened to it in one go. Uh, Chapter one, Chloe's household saying there are divisions among you. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. I voted Brexit, I'm vegan. I'm the only one who properly follows the Jewish law, whatever it is in their church. And verse 19, the divisions word, that's the word where we get heresy. The sense in which Paul is saying there must be these divisions, these heresies, these differences of what they believe among them is the same sense in which Paul says Jesus had to die. It's not good that there's these divisions, but when stuff like that happens, Jesus uses them for good to reveal the truth and falsehood. We often only realise what we have when we have the real thing, when we're confronted with a counterfeit. I was talking to a car mechanic on Saturday. Apparently, the way he learned that you need genuine BMW parts to fix a Mini was when the electric window on one of the doors wouldn't close by about that much. So someone said, oh, it's all right, just bung this in. And they did it. It closed. As it closed, shattered immediately. (laughs) And this happened three or four times until finally he said, right, I guess we'd better spend the extra few hundred quid or whatever to get the real thing. And then it was just, you know, clean, made that beautiful noise when it slots into the slot. Uh, the, The Corinthians are in danger of having a counterfeit understanding of what they're doing as Christians. So Paul uses it to draw attention to the reality. The particular car crash they're facing at the moment is actually to do with their version of a bring and share lunch, if you can believe it. Plenty in the church, it seems, would have struggled to feed themselves with three square meals a day. That's still the norm in most of the church across the world, as we heard about at our tear fund coffee morning. But the way the Corinthians were dealing with that situation is the rich people who could afford to bring like more than a quiche, you know, like caviar or whatever it was to the bring and share lunch. Uh, They were using their faction, I follow Paul, as an excuse to say, oh, you lot, you don't get to eat this week because you don't agree with me. You can imagine the high school cafeteria in like any film you've ever seen that has an American high school where the cool kids sit on one table and the other people are left out. Verse 22, what am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you for being pure and separating yourself from these other people? Well, I will certainly not praise you for this. There's only one reason anyone shouldn't be able to eat with the whole church, and he's already dealt with it. Chapter five, remember? The guy who was sleeping with his mum. If you're living in flagrant, total rejection of Jesus' way, then you can't join in with church. But if you happen to think the wrong thing about some controversial topic that Jesus hasn't pronounced about, that isn't even an issue, according to Paul, that's not a reason to say, oh, you're not allowed to eat with me. The 
church family was using their meaningless chasing of status as a way to show up innocent people who were depending on church for a good meal. This actually happens in disaster areas all the time. There are people, Christians usually, who are overlooked in the distribution of food because they're Christians. There's sort of this unwritten rule that you only get this help if you believe the right things. When that happens in church, Paul doesn't mince his words. It's a disgrace. But how Paul deals with this issue of division is probably a shock because he talks about Holy Communion. Verse 23, For I pass unto you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I won't read the rest because we're about to read it there. Verse 27, Anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. What happens up there will come out in how we think, act and speak with each other in our ordinary church life. Paul makes no qualification whatsoever. He just says, we are eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood. That is the right way to understand it. That there's a mystery there, but we should talk like that. We say that when I give you the bread and wine. Jesus is making himself totally available to all of us, together. Taking communion cosmically glues us together as Jesus' body. In a mysterious way, what we do as a church family then becomes what Jesus is doing in the world. So if we're dividing from each other because of our different views about secondary things, while we're trying to take communion together, we're creating a disconnect between what is happening there and what's happening here. What's happening physically in us all eating communion together is being contradicted by the way we're treating each other. If we're taking communion and then having a bust up about politics or our hymn preferences or anything that isn't explicitly for the good of everyone together in the church, as a whole, everyone included, we're eating the bread and drinking the cup unworthily. This is happening in the Church of England now. There are movements within the church that are trying to break away from the church down the centuries and across the world. Next week, we will look at the ways that our differences, because we are different, are held together by this cosmic glue. But the issue here is even though we're eating the same body and drinking the same blood, there are feuds and factions and disagreements about things that are nowhere near as important as the thing they are sharing. Church holds together things that we are constantly tempted to keep separate. We tend only to eat with people who at least to some extent think the same way we do. And that's particularly shown now in all the different diets we have. We recognise and approve each other are tempted to on the basis of whether they have the same diet that we do. 
But it's shown even more than that in eating with people we tend to agree with, politically or socially. Sadly, this is often reflected in how much money we have. We've ever felt embarrassed about people seeing our house because we have more or less money than them. Church is supposed to be the place where this stuff doesn't divide. We eat communion together, and that means our bring and share lunches, our coffee mornings, our PCC away days don't have an in crowd and an out crowd. Through communion, Jesus teaches each one of us that the other matters more to us, even than our own bodies. If there's anything wrong between us, it is vital to sort it out. Otherwise, eating communion can have other effects. So verse 28 to 34. Eating Jesus defines us. Eating Jesus defines us. I was trying to think of a way of saying what, it, what us means. Not it defines each one of us individually. It defines us together. Verse 28. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat and drink, you eat and drink your own judgment if you don't discern the body. Sorry, this is a different, uh, this is my translation because I think this one, in trying to explain it, actually obscures it. So sorry if you were following and and were confused there. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. Now, if we discerned ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. What is that about? (laughs) When we eat anything, we're taking that food into our bodies so that it will become part of us. We talk about food not agreeing with us, don't we? Oh, that didn't agree with me. You know, we, we, we talk about that, don't we? Well, the same thing can happen with Jesus' body and blood. This sacrament is the way Jesus grafts us into his own body. It's the way he shares his own life, his blood with us. It brings his cross into the deepest part of us. This sacrament is how the belief, Jesus died for me, becomes a physical and therefore a spiritual reality. If we're carrying around in our bodies the way of living Jesus' cross came to destroy, communion will, in some mysterious way, physically go to war against that part of us. The people who've grown sick and died in Corinth, Paul says, have had that effect for the same reason the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 was kept out of the church. He uses the word discipline. And the reason for it is so we will not be condemned along with the world. Jesus will have every one of us as his own body. And sometimes it means there are attitudes and ways of thinking that can't carry on in this short part of our eternal life as church. Meditate on this. Just test it as you pray. But as I've studied this passage, it does seem possible to me that part of Jesus' discipline 
of Christians, I don't know whether here because of all our medical knowledge, but definitely across the world, Jesus' discipline for us will mean our earthly lives are cut short. And we have to ask ourselves, if that is a risk in taking communion, how does that make us feel? Do we understand that to refuse this meal is to miss out on the basis of our life, even if it kills us? Or as people have sometimes concluded in this country, are we going to say we hold back from taking communion? Only do it once or twice a year because we sense the dread of coming to this table. Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer had to force people to take communion because of this. They were scared. They knew it was a dread thing to take this into themselves. They knew that it meant something. Well, if we are made to feel uneasy about this, the answer for us is reflected in the communion service that has built up over years of Christians, making sure that the words we say prepare us rightly for this dread thing that we're all going to do together. We always confess our sins as we have done, and we make sure we're at peace with each other, publicly, before anyone gets anywhere near eating. One Christian writer, I'm not sure about it, but I'm going to say it anyway, just I think it's a good explanation, says the reason that I eat communion first, if you've seen that, I, I take it before everyone, is so you can all see what happens to me. If I drop down dead, something's wrong. <laughs> I, I think that's literally the reason. If it's okay for me to eat it, then, then we can come forward and we can receive this benefit. There are detailed instructions and invitations in our liturgy to make sure that we do that examination that Paul talks about, verse 28 and 31. And the reason we examine ourselves is not some kind of personal holiness audit. All of us fail. I fail. We confess that we are sinners. We don't have to get ourselves cleaned up before we come. The reason we do confess our individual sins is so we notice that what we're doing is binding us together. And there isn't something in us that says, oh, I don't really fancy you. Well, I don't really want, I'm not really interested in the likes of you. No, all of us, we're stuck with each other, literally, if we come to communion together. Verse 33, we make sure everyone is included. We wait for each other. That's why we walk up the way we do. That's why we've got this slightly formal way. It's not just a bum fight. It's like, right, you know, grubs up and everyone piles in and tries to grab a little. You know, there's a reason it's ordered in this way. Jesus invites us with our physical bodies through physical food and drink to be spiritually united as his one body. Jesus shapes our spiritual life physically. And this shaping will always have an effect whether we go along with it or go against it because eating Jesus defines us. As we prepare our hearts through prayer, And as we humbly present ourselves together to God, we're being bound together as his body. That is who we are as we receive communion together this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ.
who unites us, different as we are, in one body. Amen.